part, the photographic fragments themselves keep the whole field open and ensure that linearity does not suppress the free wandering eye of the tabula. My second example is one of André Chénier's Eve of Execution Iams or Iamb, and Tom Paulin's translation of it, which was entitled From a Death Cell in his The Road to Inver of 2004. I want to begin with a backward comparative glance. Chénier's Iamb, Iams, derived from the bitter satirical iambics, that is the iambic hexameter, or rather trimeter, since it's composed of three paired iams or dipodes, of the 7th century BC Greek poet, Archilochus. Through Chénier's work, iamb becomes a generic as well as a formal term for satire. It consists of alternating Alexandrians and octosyllables in correspondingly alternating rhyme. Chénier makes explicit reference to his Greek forebear in other iambes. The iambe was taken up by Auguste Barbier in the 19th century, and isolated examples have been found in the work of Hugo and Gautier. Paulin apparently has no interest in flagging up the iambe and maintains from Chénier only the pattern of indentation. I say only the pattern of indentation because Paulin's lines bear little relation to either Alexandrian or octosyllable. They constitute a heterosyllabic mix varying between 8 and 14 syllables and on three occasions the indented line is longer than the line preceding it. One might say that Paulin has translated the language of metre into the language of indentation. And this is by no means an empty claim because it allows Paulin also to summon up the classical elegy, that is, alternating hexameter and pentameter. Chénier's own elegies stick exclusively to the Alexandrian. One might also argue, albeit more tenuously, that Paulin's heterosyllabicity better serves this particular eon's flirtation with the fables of La Fontaine, which draw on vers libre classique, or vers mêlée, as their prosodic vehicle. Compare the animalistic thread in Chénier, être, beau poulet, cartage, braille, tigre, proie, with Paulin's pending, watered, bitching, pecking order, gut and gullet, hoots, Tiger Masters. In other words, Paulin's language of indentation increases the perceptibility of the comparative generical currents which might be passing through the poem. And it is as if the very conflict or competition between these currents prevents his version settling into formal regularity or one formal guise. And an enthusiast of the classical iambic trimeter Aware of the rules of substitution, anapiste in place of iamb in the first foot, longs in place of shorts at positions 1, 5 and 9, might look with special interest at Paulin's third line with its anapistic opening, even here, pending, 
watered and waiting for the chop, and the spondaic close of the 14th line, and our tiger master's wee pimp struts in. This is all very down at heel, Archilochian iambic trimeter, but it demonstrates perhaps that comparative literature might well be a drifting experience whose edges and parameters very quickly become blurred. How much knowledge is it appropriate to bring to bear on a work? How is the pertinence of that knowledge to be judged if it is nonetheless an integral part of the reading and translating experience? Furthermore, Paulin's translation makes me more <coughs> critical of Chénier's handling of his classical sources, increasing my sense of the ways in which they might be responded to. And this in turn persuades me that among translation's tasks might be the reorientation of the source writer's position in a comparative literary world. But that willy-nilly means that the translator himself or herself takes up a comparative literary position generated only by that particular act of translation. The source text then becomes the instrument by which the translator establishes a temporary comparative literature or a temporary comparative literary position for his or her own writing. Paulin's version has ten coordinating ands to Chénier's five. With his greatest syntactic discontinuity, Chénier, it might be argued, en engineers a wider range of tempi and makes actions seem more snatched and arbitrary. But Paulin tells more about the automatic nature of momentums, about the predictability of sequences and their scope. This might have been a poem about the heroism of a daily life clung onto despite the imminence of death. But it is about the thoughtless frivolities resorted to as an anaesthetisation. Occasionally, in the and pairings, feed and sleep, watered and waiting for the chop, we whoop and cheer, and then forget, gut and gullet, raps and hoots, freeze and listen. An alliterative or assonantal connection takes us into linguistic sleepwalking and ingrained reflexes, and brings up other examples from the collective unconscious of the mechanism. Gut and gullet politicians makes me think of Thomas Nash's the very guts and garbage of his notebook he hath put into this tallow loaf from his attack on Gabriel Harvey, Have With You to Saffron Walden of 1596. These pairings may also from time to time insinuate something of the complacently preordained to be found in the Christian message. Yet we feed and sleep takes me to T.S. Eliot's poem, The Hippopotamus, of 1919, in which we read, The hippopotamus's day is passed in sleep, at night he hunts. God works in a mysterious way. The church can feed and sleep at once. While dead quick sounds like a collapsed and reversed version of the, peer, of pe the pairing we hear in the creed from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Even Chénier's verse may imply that the new shepherd of the flock is death, and that Christ has become the pourvoyeur of the juge tigre.
Pauline's playing with words as in dead quick or greasy pack of politicians, harking back to card schools, informs his onomatopoeias. This prison cell is an animal fable threatening to become a menagerie. Building on Chénier's scanty onomatopoeic indications, for example, cactage and braille, Pauline increases the noise bubbles of his comic strip. Bops, fart, whoop, raps, hoots, scrakes, which is presumably a portmanteau of creaks and scrapes. With raps, I begin to hear a flat-toned monologue delivered over a disco backing, which encourages me to reconsider bops, bee-bopping, bopping. And this growing cacophony of the menagerie is added to by Pauline's occasional dialectal inserts, Egypts and we. These inserts may gently mock Chénier's original use of Persian and Arabic to mask and encode his references to the 700 of the Convention and Barère de Vieuxac. All in all, Paulin's version seems to pursue a policy of inclusivity, stylistic and linguistic multiplicity, tonal promiscuity, open plan associative availability. This policy makes his version, among other things, an intertextual mad magnet. We've already encountered several examples, and indeed, immediately I read the opening, We Live, and see Paulin's characteristic punctuation of the dash, I call to mind Marlowe's We Live As We Dream dash, alone, from the first chapter of Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It is this impressionability of Pauline's text, its tireless shift of register, as if to imprint itself with ever broader social contexts, that begins to propose what we might call an impersonal comparative literature. I'm no longer looking for comparative connections in order to account for the literary formation of a particular subject, Chénier or Pauline, or to understand their particular writing strategy. In order to keep these texts living, in order to do justice to their life in the reading consciousness, I am looking to do justice to the infinite flexibilities and continuous variations of the translational act and to capture the collectivity of the enterprise of reading, a collectivity of readily, of readily idiosyncrasies, let us remember. Comparative literature is what a literate society creates in the way of connected networks for its reading community. This comparative literature, we might say, traverses and constantly intersects comparative literature as it is more commonly understood. What, after all, I want to imagine alongside that version of comparative literature that already exists is a comparative literature of the impersonal, of media without artists and language without privileged writers. I justify that by the familiar argument that authors are always exceeded by their products in two senses. One, because the medium is always bigger than they are, says more than they can bring under their control. And two, because additionally their works expand, become the sum of all readerly input. I justify it too by the fact that criticism is always exceeded by its own ignorance. I can trace Chénier's iambe to Archilochus because there is textual evidence for doing so. 
I can make other well-informed guesses about probable classical presences in his verse thinking, but that does little to lessen my, lessen my sense of what ignorance compels me to overlook and what false emphases my little knowledge encourages me to allot to what I do know. What is the real sum of classical influences on Chénier? It's not just that a new reader's comparative literature turns comparative literature in a projective direction. Despite its apparently reckless and arbitrary associative anarchy, it also compensates for the scandalous black hole of ignorance by multiplying possible knowledges. But the underlying problems remain. How are these two versions of comparative literature to be related to each other? And how, outside of translation, are we to stabilise or give substance to the findings of the second version? The effort to establish the phenomenology of reading rather than interpretation as the basis both of translation and comparative literature is the effort to maintain the artwork in a state of maximal imminence to prevent its forces leaking away in various kinds of transcendental metadiscourse. Artworks are not something in which historical trends, the formation of artists, the dialogue between cultures or media find their expression, make themselves manifest in allusion, citation, imitation, and so on. Artworks are always in the middle of something, in a becoming, whose affects and percepts the reader cannot but register in connections, lines of thought, pathways of sense, themselves generated by or summoning up other kinds of literary or cross-medial or cross-cultural knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, are there any kind of quick points of clarification before we move on? Because obviously that will give rise, I think, to um, lots of real, you know, lots of questions. Um, but I think if we could kind of hold those over to the later, more spacious moment. But if there's anything that just needs to clarify before we move on, okay. Let me just kind of uh, very, very provisionally um, thank you. I'll thank you properly later. Yeah. And should we move yeah. on to? Yeah. <coughs> 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 